Thank you for remaining standing while we read the Word of God for this morning. We're looking at uh, the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 through 19 today. You can follow along on the screen if you'd like to. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Thank you. You may be seated. Explain it to us. <laughs> Thanks for that scripture reading, Mike. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. My name is Zach Lee, Groups Minister here at the Parkway Church. Super excited to be with you this morning. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. We're going through a series on the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And we're going to see here Paul appeal to God as a father and ask him to give good gifts. If you ever hear Jeff Ashley pray, he will say those words. I love it. He always says, God, we thank you that you're a good father and that you give good gifts. So I'm a father. I have uh, actually two kids. Uh, one kid is, his name is Judah, and he will be two next month. And then I have a baby that is due next month. So I have two kids, but really only one of which breathes air right now. But we're expecting the other one. Very, very excited about that. And when you become a father, you become entitled to a few things. You become entitled to what are called dad jokes, if you know what a dad joke is. And you become entitled to, uh, to uh, dad stories, which are really just facts. So I'll give you examples of both. So dad jokes are typically kind of cheesy. They involve puns, things like that. So if you're checking out at the grocery store and your item doesn't have a price tag on it and the cashier says, there's no price tag here, what do you say then as a dad? Well, must be free. As if they've never heard that, right? That's a dad joke. Or you go up to a mannequin in the mall and you talk to it like it's a person to get your kids to laugh. That's a dad joke. There's actually entire websites devoted to dad jokes. One of them that I read this last week was uh, a guy said that on all his medical forms, when it said blood type, his dad always wrote the word red. And he said, to this day, I don't know my real blood type because of that, all right? My dad, when we were driving as uh, kids, we'd drive past a cemetery and he'd say, do you know how many people are buried there? And we'd say, how many? And he'd say, all of them, all right? Dad jokes, that's what you do. When you become a dad, you become entitled to dad jokes. You also become entitled to what are called dad stories. Dad stories are just facts. They're not necessarily interesting, they're just things that happen. So I'll go to the store and I'll come back and I'll be like, hey Katie, I went to the store to get a gallon of milk, but instead I decided to get two gallons. And she's like, is that your story? That's the most boring story. Just get the milk and don't tell me about it. That's the most boring story I've ever heard. That's what we do. And so uh, I'll tell you of uh, two, both from Jeff and from Tim. I got their permission beforehand to do this. But the other day we were driving over to Jeff's house uh, to get dinner. We, we go get dinner at his house, typically as a staff, on Wednesday nights. And he goes, guys, I've got this crazy story to tell you. And we're like, Jeff, please tell us this crazy story. And he said, well, I forgot to bring out my trash cans. And so when the trash man got there, he let me go to the backyard and get them and bring them out while he waited for me. And we said, well, call the New York Times, Jeff. What kind of story is that? That's the most boring story I've ever heard. Let me recap your story. I didn't bring out the trash, and then I did. The end. Plot, resolution, denouement, all of it's included in that little story. 
Last week I was chatting with Tim and he said, man, I had a great lunch with a guy. We went to Taco Cabana. He goes, what was weird though is I ordered flour tortillas with a side of a lime wedge and I got corn tortillas and no lime. And I said, Tim, I would rather hit my head, I would rather take a hammer to my head than hear that story again. What is the point of this story? They're dad stories, right? That's what happens. That's what we do as we get older. Now, uh, another thing though that we're entitled to as fathers is we have this overwhelming love to give good things to our kids. It's weird. It's like everyone told me when Katie was pregnant, you're going to love your kid so much. And I'm like, okay, I get it. Of course I'm going to love my kid. But then once your kid is born, God gives you like a supernatural love to where you want to give them good things. And here what we're going to see in this text is we're going to see Paul appeal to God as a father, and he's going to ask God that we might better realize some things. Okay, let me get on a soapbox real quick. Most sermons are not meant for you and I to go out and go do something. That's what a lot of churches do. They teach five ways to live your best life now or five ways to have a better marriage or whatever it is, and it, the sermon becomes about you and going and doing something. There is an application to each text, but usually the application is simply something you're supposed to know about God. The application's not about us because the Bible's not about us. Most of the Bible is written not for us to go do something, but for us to know something that God has already done. And that's the most practical thing in the world because what you think about when you think about God will affect everything else. And so Paul is going to pray that God would help us know some things a little bit better in this text this morning. So let's get into the text, verses 14 through 15, and we'll walk through this. For this reason. When he says for this reason, he's referencing chapter 3, verse 1. Paul started praying that these Christians would better know who they are in Christ and he interrupted himself to talk about how Jews and Gentiles are united in Christ. That the gospel doesn't just have a vertical dimension, it also has a horizontal dimension, all right? And now he's coming back to his prayer for these Christians, and he says this, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. You will see in scripture, people take different postures in approaching God. Sometimes they will get down on their face and they will worship just with their body laid out in front of God. Other times, people will raise their hands. In the New Testament, we're actually told to lift up holy hands in prayer. That's one of the reasons you see people raising their hands and things in worship. Jesus would pray with his face looking up to the sky, and you see people kneeling. The idea of kneeling here is the idea of begging. It's the idea of humility. It's the idea of submission. It's the idea of him asking God to help. And he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, before the Father. Quick pop quiz, the theologically real quick. <clears throat> Can you pray directly to Jesus biblically? Yes. Jesus says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In the book of Acts, Stephen, as he's being killed, as he's being stoned, cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Even the prayer, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha, is a, pray is a prayer to Christ. Yes, you can pray to Jesus because he is, after all, God. Can you pray directly to the spirit? Yes, though we don't have an explicit example of that in the New Testament, because he is truly and fully God, it's okay to say things like, Spirit, would you give me wisdom here? But I think the way we should most often pray is in a Trinitarian way, where our prayers are directed to the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. We can only come before God because Christ has made a way, and we don't even know how to pray rightly, the Bible says, so the Spirit has to pray for us, which is both discouraging and encouraging at the same time. And so he comes before God, bows his knee, and he addresses God as Father. Can I give you a tip, by the way, on prayer real quick? The one thing you need to know, I, I, here's the thing, I, I think we all know we're supposed to pray. A lot of us don't pray. We don't pray very well. We don't pray very often. Here's the one tip I can give you with any sort of prayer that we can learn from Paul in this text. It's that when you're praying, you're talking. 
to dad. When you're praying, you're talking to dad. You're not to do what the Gentiles do and heap up a bunch of words and these kind of things. If you had your earthly dad there in the room and he was invisible, how would you talk to him? It's the same way with God. God's everywhere. And so when you talk to him, you can talk to him normally. It's not meant to just be rote or some sort of ritual. It's this relationship. When Judah comes up to me, my son, he doesn't say, Father, thine betwixt hath thine thee thrice. And I'm like, Judah, where did you learn thrice? That doesn't happen. He comes up to me and he says, cookie. And because I'm a good father, because I'm a good father, if he should have a cookie, I will give it to him. And if he doesn't need a cookie, I won't. But the answering of his prayer in that relationship is based on my goodness, not his ability to articulate all these things. That when we're praying, we come before God as Father. We have this relationship. One of the things that I, uh, one of the stories I most like in the Bible is this fight between Elijah, who's a prophet of God, versus the prophets of Baal. In Hebrew, it's Baal, but Baal is typically how we would say it, okay? And what Elijah does is he sets up this little bet. He says, I'll cry out to Yahweh, and you cry out to Baal, and let's see who answers. Let's see who answers, right? And so the prophets of Baal are crying out all day long. They're using a bunch of words. They're using a bunch of mantras. They're using a bunch of repetition. They even take rocks and they start cutting their arms to try to manipulate and get God to move. And Elijah starts mocking them, which I love. He says, maybe your God's sleeping. He literally says, maybe he's in the restroom. He says, maybe he's relieving himself. He's got that fan on. He can't hear you when you're praying. Nothing's going on. You don't, he can't, he can't, have, it can't affect what you're praying for. And then when it's Elijah's turn to pray before God, what Elijah does is he goes before God and he says, God, would you remember the promises you've made to Israel and would you turn back the hearts of your people? One approaches God through mantras, through repetition, through many words. The other approaches God through a relationship. And I think we have a tendency sometimes to come before God like the prophets of Baal and think that we've got to say all the right words or we've got to mean it hard enough or we've got to do this little rote memory thing instead of talking to God. And here Paul comes before God as a father and says, would you hear me because you're a father? Let's look what he prays for. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father. Look at verse 15 from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. There's a little issue going on here in Greek. The Greek word father is pater, and the Greek word family is patria. They're linked, right? Because a family is one who follows a father. And so you see this idea of, I come before the father through whom every family is named. Now, here's my question to you. What does verse 15 mean? What does it mean to say that God is the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named? Well, here's the idea. In the Bible, the idea of naming somebody typically carries two ideas with it. Not always, but typically. It carries the idea of authority, right? So parents name their kids because they're an authority over those kids. And naming also carries this idea that whatever you're naming that person, it's almost like a mini prophecy of what's going to happen with their life. So in the Old Testament, if I name my son Tubby or something, he's not going to grow up to be slender, it's kind of this prophecy for how his life is going to go. So I'll give you a few of these. What is Adam's name? It's Adam. Do you know what Adam means? It means dirt. The Hebrew word Adamah means dirt or mud. Do you know why he's named that? Because he's taken from the dirt and he's commanded to work the ground and subdue the earth. If you were around today, we'd name him something like clay, right? Or sandy, if it was a girl. Something earthy. That's the idea. He submits to God, and his job, as he's taken from the earth, is to subdue the earth for God's glory. Who names Eve? 
Adam. Adam is the loving leader of that relationship. And what does Eve mean? It means the mother of all the living. Because it's hard to fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply by yourself, right? So there's this, this idea that she will be the mother of all the living, okay? And then Adam names the animals. Why? Because he has authority over the animals. God will come to Abram, and he'll rename him Abraham. Why? Because God is an authority over him, and God is giving him this commission that you will be a father of many nations. Jacob, his name means trickster or supplanter. Why? Because that's what he does. He tricks. And so with that idea in mind, what does it mean to say that everything in heaven and earth derives their name from God? The idea is that God is sovereignly over everything. God is the creator of everything. He is the authority over everything. He is in control of over everything. That's the idea, both on earth and in heaven. He names the angels. Isaiah 40, 26. The idea of stars and angels are mixed up in the Old Testament, by the way. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. That's what it says. That's what it says, right? Now, the reason Paul does this is because he's trying to say, the God I'm appealing to, the God that I'm appealing to his father, he is sovereign. He will hear this prayer because he is in control, because he names everything. That's the idea. I'll often hear people say, Zach, if God is really sovereign, if, he's control, if he controls everything, if God is really sovereign, why do we pray? Ready? Because he's sovereign. It makes no sense, actually, to pray if he's not. What does it mean to pray for your lost family member if God cannot overcome their wills and cause them to believe? And so, it's not just that God ordains the end, he also ordains the means. If God has ordained for me to get dinner tonight, the way that he has ordained it is for me to get in my car and go do that. If God is ordained to save somebody, the way he's going to do that is because he's also ordained somebody to share the gospel with him. If God is going to heal somebody, he might have ordained the way that he's going to do that is through prayer. So it's not because God has ordained everything we don't pray. It's the way that God will accomplish his work is through the prayer that he has ordained. And so Paul says, I appeal to him, I appeal to him as a father. He's the one that's in charge. That's why you can trust him. Paul, what are you praying for us about? Verse 16. Verse 16 that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Here's what he means by that. Because God is extraordinarily mighty, he can strengthen us through the spirit, which provides us with a lot of things. So when you repent and trust in Christ, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity comes and dwells in you. And that provi he provides a lot of things. He provides spiritual protection. By the way, can a Christian be demon-possessed? No. You know why? Because you're already possessed by the Holy Spirit, and he will not have any other tenants in his house. All right? He provides spiritual protection. You can be oppressed. You can be attacked. You can even be severely oppressed, but the Holy Spirit provides protection for you. But another thing that the Spirit does is he grows us in our inner being. He grows us in holiness. He grows us in sanctification. He grows us in righteousness, all right? So I want to say this. You don't grow in holiness in your Christian life by trying harder. You don't do it by white-knuckling your way through that. You do it through submitting yourself more and more and more to the spirit that you've already been given, more to the spirit that you've already been given. Let me, let me read a few passages for you. I think we're going to throw them up on the screen. Romans 8, 13 through 15. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Jeremiah 17.5 tells us not to trust in ourselves as well. Jeremiah 17.5 says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. The way we grow spiritually is not by trying harder. It's by submitting ourselves to the Spirit. Here's what that looks like. If you're dealing with some sort of struggle or temptation, if you're wanting to love God more, if you're wanting empowerment for ministry, maybe you're scared to evangelize or whatever it might be, you don't just try harder in your own strength. God doesn't want you relying on you. Instead, you yield yourself to the Spirit, and here's how you do that. You get alone with God in a quiet place. One, you repent of any known sin in your life. Sin hinders your relationship with God. Number two, you ask the Spirit to move. You yield yourself to the Spirit. You submit yourself to the Spirit. You beg God to help. You beg God for mercy. And then number three, you remind yourself of the truths of the gospel. It's already done. It's already accomplished. You're already loved if you're a Christian. You're already forgiven if you're a Christian. There's no wrath towards you if you're a Christian. And it's by remembering the truths of your justification that you grow in your sanctification, that you grow in your sanctification. Now, One more thing I want to mention here. It's not directly related to the text, but it is how the Spirit empowers us, and it is day by day. Okay, I was uh, reading a book recently on Navy SEALs. By the way, there's about four things, if you know me, that I'm really passionate about, okay? Theology, Red Bull, baseball, and Navy SEALs. That's pretty much it. If we have a conversation, I'm going to try to turn the conversation to one of those things, or somehow all four at the same time, okay? And so one of the things I think that's so interesting about Navy SEALs and why I really like them is because they have some of the most rigorous, difficult military training in the world. It takes several years to become a SEAL. It costs over a million dollars. And the first thing that they have to go through is something called BUDS, Basic basic Underwater Demolition SEALs Training. And it is six months long. And here's why I think it's so interesting. 90% of the guys that go into that don't make it through with their class. 90%. And these are not wimpy guys. These are the kind of guys that can already do 200 push-ups in a row and 30 dead hang pull-ups in a row and these kind of things before they even start. And 90% fail and don't make it through it. And what's interesting is there's not really any rhyme or reason to it. There are professional Olympic athletes that drop out of buds. There are professional athletes that can't do it and drop out of buds. People get through of all different kinds of demographics and races and socioeconomic classes. Why do 10% get through and the other 90%, though they've devoted their entire lives to wanting to do that, ring the bell and quit? Well, one of the things that's really, really interesting is they say the difference is the guys who end up quitting are looking into the future when they're struggling with some sort of pain. So what they're doing is they're holding a boat over their head and their arms are shaking and they're thinking to themselves, I can't do this for six more months. Or they tie their hands and their feet together and throw them in the pool and they just have to stay alive for several hours and they're thinking, I can't do this for six more months, right? Or they're in the freezing cold water and they're shaking and they're going into hypothermic shock and they're thinking, I can't do this for six more months. And those guys are the ones that ring out. The guys who succeed are the guys who, why they're in that moment of pain, they're just thinking about this. They're not thinking about six months in the future. They're not thinking about everything else that they have to do. They're just thinking about what's going on right now. So if they're running, they're not even thinking about getting to the end of the run. They're just thinking, I just need to get to that next sand dune. And when they get there, they think, now I just need to get to the next sand dune. They take it one event, what they call an evolution, one event at a time. So if a guy is in the push-up position and he's shaking and you say, hey man, 
are you nervous about the swim you're going to have to do? He'll say, I'm not thinking about the swim. I'm in the push-up position. I'm thinking about being in the push-up position. Those are the guys that succeed because they take it one event at a time. Now, what does that have to do with this text at all? Here's what it has to do with this text. You ready? The way that the Spirit inspires us and it powers us in our life is one day at a time. That's it. That's it. God will give you enough grace that you need to get through today, today, and that's it. He will not give you the grace you need tomorrow, today. He won't do it. He will give you the grace you need tomorrow, tomorrow. It's kind of like manna in the Old Testament. He's not going to give you a whole week's worth. He's going to make you trust him day after day after day. His mercies are new every morning. Doesn't Jesus say something like that? Not to worry about tomorrow, that each day has a sufficient amount of worry on its own? So the idea here is that the Spirit will give you the grace you need to get through today, and that's it. And then tomorrow, His mercies will be new every morning. Now here's why I tell you this, and this is important to realize about how the Spirit works in our lives. If you have some sort of disease, and you say, you know what, I've got to go through some sort of treatment for the next two years, you might think to yourself, man, I can't do this for two years. God's not asking you to do it for two years. He's asking you to do it today. And then tomorrow, He'll give you new grace, and He'll ask you to do it that day. Or if you're in a bad marriage and you think, man, I can't stay in this marriage for 30 years. God's not asking you to stay in it for 30 years. He's asking you to stay in it today, and he'll give you the grace to do so. And then tomorrow, he's asking you to stay in it tomorrow, and he'll give you the grace to do so. Or if you're struggling with anxiety or fear or depression, and you think, man, I can't do this the rest of my life. God's not asking you to do it the rest of your life. He's asking you to do it today, and he will provide what he commands. Augustine prayed, Lord, command what you will, and give what you command. I think so much of our stress and so much of our anxiety and so much of our fear comes from trying to deal with tomorrow's problems on today's grace, on today's grace. And so Paul prays that these people would be empowered by the Spirit to grow in holiness. Verse 17, let's break it down. Let's do the first part here. Verse 17a, what does he pray for us? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. By the way, when it says hearts here, the idea is your inner person. All right, sometimes the Bible will use different words to talk about your inner person. Heart uh, is the Greek word cardia. It's where we get the word cardiology. Sometimes the Greek will use the term splunkne, which is like your guts, because that's really where you feel things. If you're in high school, you're in college, and you go on a date, you feel butterflies in your stomach. Or if you almost get into a wreck, you get that adrenaline dump, and you feel it in your stomach, you feel it in your splunkne, in your guts. Sometimes the Bible uses the term kidneys as your inner life, your nephroi. The issue is not what body part does Christ dwell in. That's not the issue. The whole, part of, the whole point of what he's saying is that he may continue to dwell in your inner life. Now, here's my question for you theologically. What does it mean as Paul prays uh, for Christians who already have Christ to pray that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith? What does that mean? He's talking to people that already have Christ. So what does it mean to pray, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts? I think the idea here is that Christ would continue to establish his reign in their hearts. That they would continue walking in what's already been given to them. It's kind of like, let's say Tim is at the church here working late. And I go up to Tim and I say, hey, Tim, you need to stop working. You need to go home and be a father to your son. It's not that he's not already a father. He is. What I'm saying by that is go act out what's already true relationally. And I think that's what Paul's saying here, that Christ may continue to rule and reign in your heart. He may continue to establish his reign in your life, not just that you somehow don't have Christ and now you have him. It's though you already have him, may he continue doing what he is going to do. 
It's similar to Galatians 2.20. I think we're going to throw that on the screen as well. Galatians 2.20 says this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a statement about identity. It's a statement about our identity in Christ. Okay. Let's say I take you up on the roof. I wouldn't do this for Jerry, by the way. Brother Jerry, if y'all know him, during the middle of the week, he will have on flip-flops and he will get up on the roof to make sure like the steeple's not going to fall off and things like that. And it terrifies the staff because we don't want that to be the first funeral we do here. Okay? And so if I invite someone up on the roof who's not Jerry, and I say, hey man, I want you to jump off this roof. I want you to jump off this roof. Are you going to do it? Oh man, nobody answered. No! Don't do it! Don't do it! All right? The answer to that is no. Now, if I say, I want you to jump off this roof, but I say, wait, before you do, I want to tell you something I've never told you before. You're Superman. Your mother and I found you in this weird capsule thing in our backyard, and you're actually from another planet, and you can fly. Does that now change what I'm asking you to do? It does. You see, because your identity and who you are changes what you can do and how you see yourself and how you act and these kind of things. So this is a statement about our identity in Christ. He's in us, we are in him. That's who we are. There is no more Zach. Zach died at my conversion. There's only Christ. Is God happy with Zach? Yes, because he's happy with Christ. Is Zach spotless? Yes, because Christ is spotless. Our identity is in Christ. There's a a pastor I heard one time who was preaching a sermon uh, up at a church in the Northwest. True story. And there was a lady in his congregation that was uh, being uh, sexually promiscuous. And so he confronted this lady and sat down with her, and he found out through that meeting that this woman, when she was a little kid, had a family member, I think it was an uncle, who had uh, taken advantage of her, who had assaulted her, okay? And her uncle would tell her horrible things. You're worthless. You're dirty. Nobody wants you. Those kind of things. And so this pastor, through the truth of the gospel, was able to say, whoa, 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 whoa. In Christ, you have a new identity. In Christ, you're clean. You're worthy. Christ wants you. And he said this woman just broke down crying because it was the first time in her life that she realized because she saw her identity as one who was dirty, she was doing what was dirty instead of realizing that her identity as a believer is in Christ so she's free to walk in holiness. So she's free to walk in holiness. This is everything. Your identity in Christ is everything. What are you telling yourself all day? Because nobody talks to you more than you. And nobody lies to you more than you. I have found that I'm pretty harsh with myself. I'll, think to my, I'll do something in the middle of the day and I'll think to myself, Zach, you idiot. And I think, why am I so harsh with myself? And what you have to do is you have to reshape your mind to preach the truths of the gospel to yourself all day long. I'm loved. I'm accepted. I'm forgiven. I'm adopted. I'm not going to hell. God is not mad at me. God loves me. Everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. And it has to do with this identity thing, that Christ may continue to rule and reign in your life, that he may continue to be your identity. We're already trying to teach my son Judah about identity now because he's so little. We're saying, Judah, we love you, and you're smart, and you're funny, and we care for you, and we're glad you're our son. With all the uh, gender confusion issues, we're already telling him now, Judah, you're a boy. Mommy is a girl. Daddy is a boy, and we're teaching him those things. Now, when we're out in public, he then just starts calling out people's genders, okay? It's very awkward at the store. So like a lady will come up, and he'll be like, boy, and we'll be like, 
Oh, you want a toy? That's what you're saying. You're saying toy. Here you go. Sorry, sorry. That's what we're doing, right? He doesn't get it yet, but we're trying to, to teach him these identity things now. He thinks, because he knows mommy has a baby in her tummy, he thinks everyone has a baby in their tummy. So he'll go up and he'll be like, Judah baby, and he'll pat his tummy and we're like, no, buddy, you don't have a baby in your tummy, only mommy. And he'll go up to me and he'll be like, daddy baby, and I'm like, that's eh, just a burrito. That's not, uh, that's not, that's just me needing to lose a few more pounds. There's no baby there, all right? But we're trying to teach him these identity things here. So Paul prays that Christ may continue to expand his reign in our lives, that we might live under his reign and kingdom more and more and more. And one more thing before we go on to the next part of the verse. This also means that if Christ reigns in our hearts through faith, that God is always close to you no matter how you feel. I have found that most, in most of my Christian life, it feels like God is a million miles away. Sometimes he won't let me feel his presence. And what I've learned is a lot of times God won't let me feel his presence because he wants me to trust what his word says about me is true and not how I feel. Because if, I, if it's the case that when I feel like God's far away, I think he is far away. And if I feel like when he's close, he actually is close, for the rest of my life, I'll be on this weird emotional roller coaster feeling like my relationship with God just comes and goes. And God loves me too much for that. So what he's doing is he's saying, I'm not going to let you feel anything so that you trust that I'm close to you. How close? As close as you are to yourself. If Christ dwells in your heart through faith, then God is always close. He has not left or forsaken you or abandoned you. That he is close. There's a great little uh, quote that's attributed to Martin Luther. He didn't actually say it, but uh, it is, feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My hope is in the word of God, not else is worth believing. That's the idea, that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. So God is always close, always close. Let's look at 17b through 19a as Paul continues this prayer. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Okay, here's my question for you, church. In verse 18, what is the object of the breadth and length and height and depth? Do you see how the sentence just ends? Oh, let's read it again. May have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of what? Do you see the issue? It's kind of like if I were to say this, my favorite restaurant is... Let's go there for lunch. You're like, what? Where, where are we going? What is the favorite restaurant? What is the reference here to the length and height and depth and breadth? What is the reference there? Well, there's a lot of different opinions people have on this. Some people think that it's love because love is mentioned in the next verse in verse 19. The problem with that is this, const I don't want to get too technical, but this construction in Greek occurs three other times in the New Testament and never does the next line provide the object for the previous line. So there's a syntactical grammatical issue here. So it might refer to the love of God. It might refer to God's wisdom, God's power. Some people have said it's a reference to the new Jerusalem because when that's mentioned in the book of Revelation, all these different dimensions, it's like this big cube that comes down. Why? Because the, uh, the Holy of Holies was a cube, by the way. That's the reference in Revelation, that the whole world will become the Holy of Holies. That's the idea. Some people think it's that. Uh, some people in the early church said that the breadth and length and height and depth referred to the four dimensions of the cross, which reaches out and embraces the whole world. I think that's ridiculous. What is the reference here? I think that Paul here is an in intentionally generic. I think if you want to put an object there, it's something like the riches we have in Christ or the power of God for believers. Paul is saying, of everything that I just mentioned, 
power by the Spirit, the fact that God loves you, the fact that He's uniting Jew and Gentile, all of it, I pray that you might know what it means to fully have the riches of Christ. And then lastly, let's look at verse 19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I had a lot of trouble in preparing for this sermon. Do you know why? Because some of these truths are so fundamental and so basic, I don't know how to get us to wrap our minds around them them without it sounding cliche. So if I just say, this text just said that God loves us, you'll say, well, of course. Of course God loves us. Yes, God loves me. I've heard that my whole life. Here's my question for you. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? What's interesting is when we talk about God's attributes, we see that he's justice and God is love and God is wrath and these kind of things, and all his attributes go together. So it's not just that God is love but not wrath. You know why? Because if you love something, you hate its opposite. I love my son, so if he gets cancer, I really have wrath towards cancer, and I hate that. So God's love and his wrath go together. If I talk to a lost person just out in the world about God's love and God's wrath, guess which one is easy for them to believe? God's love. And which one's difficult for them to believe? God's wrath. They're fine with God as long as God doesn't get to be God and tell them what to do. But what's weird is when I go into community groups, and I'll ask this question sometimes in different community groups, I'll say, when the Bible teaches about God's wrath and God's love, which one of those truths is harder for you to believe? Almost every person, not everybody, but almost every person says, it's God's love. It's God's love. I I get a God who's just. I get a God who's wrathful. What I don't get is a God who would love me because of everything I've done. So what's weird is whereas the world is focusing on God's love when it might need to focus on his wrath, Christians are focusing on the wrath instead of focusing on the love. This is just a hard concept for us to get. So I'm just going to tell you some truths biblically and just hope the Spirit does something in your heart if you're wrestling with this, okay? So look at me. This is important. God loves you. He doesn't just love you. He is head over heels in love with you. Zephaniah says he rejoices over you with loud singing. The Psalms say that you are the apple of his eye. He loves you. He doesn't just love you like you love. It's not this wishy-washy, sometimes I love my wife on one day more than another. It's a strong, abiding love for you. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. He likes you. He's proud of you. He's not disappointed in you. He, He doesn't regret saving you. He loves you. Jesus is the most kind, gentle, loving person ever. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he won't snuff out. He plays with children. He's kind. And what Paul says is, may God let you know the overwhelming love that we have as those in Christ. As we have as those in Christ. And then the last part of the verse, verse 19b, says this. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see a little bit of the rhetorical effect there in saying filled with all the fullness of God. So here's what I want to do to end with. I want to show you this uh, picture that they, uh, they threw up. Go ahead and throw that back up there. I want to show you this interesting picture that Tim has created, and I want to explain it to you, and here's why this is important. The idea of God's fullness and the idea of God's presence is one of the major themes in Scripture. So follow me as I explain what this means. What do you think the earth represents? The earth. The earth. Nailed it. Boom. Nailed it. All right? The white part represents heaven. And the darker background represents sin and distance, okay? So let, let, me, let me walk through what the, the idea behind this. In the Garden of Eden, heaven is on earth. Notice that Eden there, the heaven and the earth, they touch directly, all right? There's no problems. In the Garden of Eden, heaven, which is seen as God's realm, God's place where he rules, 
is on earth. God's kingdom has come on earth as it is in heaven in Eden. God is walking with man. There's not a separation between God and man. There's no problems. There's no death. Everything is good in Eden. Heaven and earth, the place of God and the place of man, are on top of each other. If there were like two transparencies and you had like a yellow transparency and a blue transparency, you would have a green transparency because they lay over the top of each other. Everything's good. God's kingdom, where he rules and reigns, absolute authority and there's no rebellion, is set up in Eden. And then mankind rebels against God and you get sin and you see God distance himself. You see heaven and earth, in a sense, separate. Heaven and earth separate, okay? Now, though heaven and earth become separate, there, is, there are still these places where heaven touches earth. There are still these places where heaven kisses earth. Though God is everywhere, his presence is especially felt in certain places. So one of those places, for example, is the tabernacle. The tabernacle is like this big tent. And guess what the tabernacle is? It is a portable Eden. It is the place where God dwells. The tabernacle, if you look at the description of it, it has pomegranates on it, sewn into it, angels sewn into it. Why? Because it looks like the Garden of Eden. That's the point. God has withdrawn his presence from sinful humanity, but among his people, though he is everywhere, in the tabernacle, his presence is especially close to his people. You then see that idea with the temple. That's why the columns of the temple look like palm trees and these kind of things. It's meant to represent paradise. It's meant to represent Eden. So heaven and earth are meant to be like this because of sin they get separated, but there are still these little points of light where heaven touches earth. The Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, by the way, is called God's footstool. God doesn't have feet, technically, right, because he's spirit, but the idea is his divine feet touch down over the Ark of the Covenant. And then you get Jesus coming into the world. The eternal Son of God takes on flesh, becomes a man while remaining God, and he, quote, tabernacles among us. Jesus is Eden as a man. He is the one that you go to to best know God's presence. That's why Colossians says, in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He tabernacles among us. That's why he says he is the new temple. You don't pray facing Jerusalem anymore. You pray facing Jesus. You only come to the Father through Jesus. And then at Pentecost, the Spirit is given. The Spirit is given. And now the place where God dwells, where heaven touches earth where there's a remnant of Eden, is in the hearts of believers, within the heart of Christ's church. But there is a day that's coming, there is a day that's coming, where heaven and earth will again be reunited. That's why in the Bible there's not just a new heaven, there's a new heaven and a new earth. That's why we don't go up to it, that's why the new Jerusalem comes down to us in the book of Revelation. The idea is, is that we've gotten back to Eden. The Bible begins in a garden and it ends in a city. In the garden, the command is to subdue the whole earth, to cultivate it, to make it a city that glorifies God. And at the end of the Bible, you see mission accomplished because of what Christ has done. And this idea is known as God's presence, his fullness, the kingdom of God, these kind of things. Now, with that in mind, what does Paul mean when he says that we might better understand the fullness of him who fills all in all, these kind of things? The idea is, may you continue growing into what God is going to do eventually. May you continue realizing that right now we live in that age right there where you see the Spirit, we, the Spirit dwells in us, but one day, one day, the enemy will be vanquished. The kingdom, which has already begun, will be consummated, and the story will be complete. And the story will be complete. May you continue growing into that. That's the idea. May you continue realizing that. Now, you can take that uh, strange picture away. Hopefully that was helpful. I want to ask you a few questions this morning. 
I want to ask you a few questions based on this text, and I want you to answer honestly. I'm not going to make you raise your hand or do any of that. I just want you to answer between you and God. I want you to wrestle with some of these things from this text, okay? Let me give them to you. Number one, how is your prayer life? Do you see God as a father when you pray? In what way, if you had a bad earthly father, does it make it difficult for you to see God as father? Sometimes it's very difficult if you had a bad earthly dad to see uh, God as some type of dad. You might see him as frustrated with you or abusive or disappointed or whatever it might be. Number two, in what ways are you trying to grow in holiness through, quote, doing better instead of yielding yourself to the Spirit? Instead of yielding yourself to the Spirit. What sin in your life are you managing instead of putting to death and giving to Jesus and letting him take it? Number three, in what things do you find your identity other than Jesus? Do you find it in your job? Do you find it in your spouse? Do you find it in your kids? Do you find it in your money, your talent, your education? Do you find your identity in your sin? When you think of yourself, is one of the main things you think of yourself some sort of sin or struggle that you have? Because if you're in Christ, that's not your identity. Do you think of it as some sort of failure? Do you wear some sort of scarlet letter spiritually on your chest, if you will? And then number four, if you are a Christian, do you really believe that God loves you personally, that he is proud of you, and that he likes and enjoys you? That he likes and enjoys you. The reason this text was difficult for me is because it's basically Paul saying, I go before the Father, and here's what I pray for you. That you'd know his power in the Spirit, that Christ would continue to rule in your hearts, that you would know how much he loves you, and that you would feel his fullness. That's kind of what he's saying in this passage. And so where I think I was most hit by some interesting things as I was kind of studying this passage is realizing deep down, I just don't really believe that God loves me. And that's really a root for a lot of the other sins I struggle with. So where I struggle with fear and depression or anxiety, it's ultimately because I believe God doesn't love me. He doesn't have a good plan for me. He doesn't really care what happens. I have a better plan for my life than he does. Where I struggle with pride, what I've realized is the reason I struggle with pride is because I don't think God loves me so I'm trying to get that kind of love from other people. So maybe if I puff myself up and look awesome and try to look worthy, maybe then I'll feel that love that I'm missing. And what Paul is praying is, no, 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 no. The solution to everything is knowing God's overwhelming, unrelenting love for you, even when you were at your worst. If God could love you when you hated him and were his enemy, surely he can love you now no matter what you struggle with. Surely he can love you now no matter what you struggle with. So as I pray, the men are going to come forward to pass out communion. And if you're struggling with any of these things, you don't rest in the Spirit's power, you're trying to conquer sin on your own, you don't really believe that God loves you, whatever it is, would you ask him for help? He enjoys helping. He wants to help. He wants to help so much, he asks you not to do it yourself. Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength. So as the men come forward, let me pray, and you pray for whatever you need to this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Christ that you sent your son to die for your enemies while we were still your enemies. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, that we don't even know how to pray rightly. He has to pray for us because we're just like babbling kids. We don't know what we need, but he does. And so I pray that you would encourage us. I pray for anybody in this room that's hurting. I pray for anybody in this room that's doubting. I pray for anybody in this room that's struggling with something. Would you overwhelm them with your grace? I pray that they might just be driving in the car this week or they might be sitting at their desk this week or they might be just sitting on the couch this week and all of a sudden, you would just hit them with how much you love them. 
I pray for those that keep crying out that they would feel more of your love but don't believe it's, it's true biblically. I ask that you would refresh their mind in the truth of your scriptures regardless of how they feel. Would you cast away our false feelings and help us trust your scriptures more? We love you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.